In the name of Jesus, amen. Isaiah is the last of the outstanding characters in Israel's history. Midway between Sinai and Calvary, Isaiah was commissioned to prophesy to evil Ahaz and righteous Hezekiah. God sent Isaiah to preach a message of pardon. In his commission, God says to him, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And for 39 chapters, Isaiah does this. Southern kingdom of Judah was hardened in their sin. They allied themselves with heathen Syria. And so God sent Pekah, the king of northern Israel, to chasten Judah with the sword. Even when the Lord offers to help Ahaz with a great sign, as high as heaven above and as deep as hell beneath, the unbelieving king claims a false and hypocritical humility. The great gospel, the promise of Emmanuel, becomes a token of judgment against the hardened king. But that's not what we remember Isaiah for tonight. Tonight, we remember Isaiah as the great evangelist of the Old Testament. Chapters 40 through 66 drip with the dew of the gospel. And the beating heart of this preachment is the prediction of our Lord's passion in, Isaiah's, in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Tonight, as is fitting, we will meditate upon our Lord's suffering and death. First, we will speak of the causes of our Lord's suffering. Next, we will speak of the content of his suffering, what he suffered. And finally, we will speak of the benefits of Christ's suffering. What were the causes of our Lord's suffering and death? The first cause of our Lord's suffering is the Father's will. It was our Heavenly Father's will that Christ suffer and die. Isaiah 53, 6 makes this very clear. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is an amazing sentence. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is holy. This is what we sing every Sunday in the Sanctus. Holy, holy, holy. But how can a holy God dwell with sinners? How can the straight God dwell with us? We who are bent and twisted and deformed by our sins. Because that's what iniquity means. The Father laid on Jesus, the King who became a slave, our perversity, our twistedness, and the Greek is even more instructive here than the Hebrew. The word used in the Greek translation of Isaiah is the same word used with Judas Iscariot when he betrays or hands Jesus over. This handing over language is also used of God's judgment. When God judges the sinner, he hands them over to their own sin. Now God the Father hands Jesus over to be judged on account of our iniquity. God the Father is the one who judges, condemns, and punishes Jesus. Isaiah 53.10 is clear too. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It pleased the Father to do this. 
God the Father was delighted to do this. That is what the text says. Now we might be tempted to think that this bruising is the same mentioned in Genesis 3, but we would be wrong. There, Christ bruises or crushes Satan's head. Satan does the same to Christ's heel. This word that's used in Isaiah's text for bruising or crushing is a different word, and it has different connotations. Psalm 89 uses this same word that Isaiah uses. There, God bruises or crushes proud and evil Egypt, aptly named Rahab. Here, in this text, Jesus, the faithful and sinless servant, is treated just the same as the enemies of God are treated. God delighted to crush Christ, just as he delighted to crush Egypt. Not only has God delighted in crushing his delightful servant, Jesus, he has also made him sick and weak with continual smiting. That's what he has put him to grief means. And the Lord, through the prophet Micah, uses this same language. In Micah chapter 6, the Lord complains. He says, O oh my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. This passage is where we get the reproaches, which are often sung during Good Friday services. The Lord then rebukes his people for their sins. And he threatens punishment in verse 13, where God says, Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. God the Father makes Christ sick by continual blows, just as he did to the wicked people of Israel and Judah. Now how? How can God the Father will this? How can God the Father delight in crushing his son, his faithful servant? How can God the Father want to strike Christ continually until he is sick and wounded? This brings us to the second cause of, our, of Christ's suffering. Christ suffered and died out of his great love for sinful man. Listen again to verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Christ was fatally wounded because we stepped outside the lines. Our perversity, our bentness, our twistedness is what caused our Father in heaven to bruise or crush Christ as if he were God's enemy. Because we were the Father's enemies. But out of his unspeakable mercy, the Father treated Christ as we deserved. The Father delighted in punishing the one with whom he is well pleased because he delights in our salvation. Those two causes, the Father's will and our salvation, go together. The Father wanted this because he wanted us. We know the causes of Christ's passion. We now move on to the next point. What did Christ suffer? As I preached on before, Christ's entire life is a passion story. And Psalm 45, 2 says this about Christ. He says, you are, the, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Christ is by nature beautiful. 
He is beautiful both in his divine nature and in his human nature. And yet, because he desired our salvation, Christ was humbled in his appearance, and he became ugly for our sake. Isaiah notes the ugliness of Christ at his nativity and during his growth as a man. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Christ's beauty was masked by the ugliness of the poverty at his birth. Because how can God be born in such a wretched place? How could the king of all creation be placed in a dirty feeding trough? There was nothing about Christ's development that revealed his beauty. No one desired him. No one saw the power and the glory that was hidden. They thought he was just like them. Just as Paul says in our lesson, that they regarded him according to the flesh. So Nazareth, his boyhood home, was offended there when he preached a sermon of power and fulfillment. Is this not Joseph's son, they cried? Thus Jesus' words ring true. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. But the ugliness increased until it culminated in the cross. His visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now no doubt, the physical sufferings of Christ were terrible. The Romans were calloused beasts with no regard for restraint. But the true suffering which disfigured Christ's face was spiritual. We will speak about that later. Jesus' suffering also included being dishonored by men. Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men. We see this in the Sanhedrin, who blasphemed our Savior. We see this in the crowds who called for Barabbas the robber and cursed Christ. We see this in the mocking words of those who surrounded the cross. We see this even in the crucified robbers, who for a time railed against him. But men dishonored Christ in a far worse way. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They believed that Christ was guilty. They believed him to be the blasphemer. They believed him to be a dirty sorcerer who was demon-possessed and misled the people. They believed him to be a rabble-rouser, and a traitor. And what's worse is they believed that God hated Jesus. They thought, well, at least that man is getting what he deserved. He's cursed by God. He's hated by God. Otherwise, God would save him. God would take him down from that cursed tree and restore him. And if God did that, then we would believe in him. But he doesn't. Therefore, this Jesus must have been rightly condemned by men because God condemns him too. I mean, isn't that terrible? The very thing that they want Jesus to do, the very condition that they make for their faith in him, would damn them to hell forever and ever. And even in his burial, Jesus is dishonored by man. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, 
nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Not only was Christ numbered with the transgressors, but to add insult to injury, he was dishonored in his death. They thought to break Jesus' legs, but the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken, and again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And again, they thought they would dump Jesus' body in an unmarked mass grave. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus' grave was with the rich. His body was placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Thus, in life and in death, Christ was dishonored by men. But the deepest and most horrible suffering that Christ underwent was that he was forsaken by God the Father. We heard and discussed this in the prophecy above. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But even the very fact that Jesus was crucified shows that God the Father forsook him. Listen to what the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 says. It says, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. That's why they wanted to break the thieves' legs. That's why they wanted them to die so they could remove the bodies. Because the law of Moses clearly states here that these men who were hanged on the cross were accursed by God and they, had, and they couldn't remain on those crosses. They had to be taken down and buried. And this law of Moses, written 1,400 years before our Lord's birth, is fulfilled in Christ. The Holy Spirit, through St. Paul, writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. We saw this forsakenness in Matthew's Passion reading too. Here, once again, Jesus' words. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This right here is the worst part of Christ's passion. The mockery of men was nothing compared to the wrath of God. The sting of the whip was nothing compared to the sting of the law. The false testimony at Caiaphas's kangaroo court was more bearable than the perfect justice of God's courtroom. All this Christ endured. He, though innocent and sinless, suffered as the vilest murderer, the most stubborn atheist, and the greatest sinner of all. What he suffered was hell. Jesus suffered all the torments of hell on the cross, because God's perfect justice demanded it. So if you want to see hell on earth, look at the cross, because that is what our Savior suffered. The cross is hell on earth. The cross is also Jacob's ladder. It is the true ladder to heaven. 
Having discussed the causes and the content of, our, of Christ's passion, we must now ask, what are the benefits of Christ's suffering and death? The first benefit of Christ's passion is our justification. Isaiah 53:11 says, By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. We are justified because of Jesus. We who are ungodly are declared righteous, not because of what we have done or left undone, but because of what Christ, the suffering servant, has done. He bore the load, the load of our sins. We are justified not by works, but by faith. Not because faith is so great, but because faith clings to what Christ has done. We are now righteous before God. He shall not damn or condemn us anymore. Instead, we are pure and holy and righteous in his eyes. So don't ever think that justification is some stuffy 16th century word. Justification is the first and the foundation of every other benefit which we receive from Christ's cross. We are not justified, we are damned. But since we are justified, we need not fear anything. Thanks be to God. The next benefit of Christ's passion is our peace with God and our spiritual and eventually our physical healing. As Isaiah says, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. We now possess the peace which passes all understanding. And even though in this world we have tribulation, we have peace with God because Jesus was chastised to death. His torn and bloody back is the reason why we are healed from our spiritual leprosy of sin and from our moral paralysis. Because in Jesus, God has reconciled himself to the world. His stripes are the reason why we look forward to our own resurrection when we shall be immortal and incorruptible, just as he is now. The next benefit of Christ's passion is our eternal pleasure. Isaiah says, He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This itself could be a sermon. True religion does not deny a man the pleasures of the senses, but rather makes them more pleasurable by temperance and by moderation. And what's more, the spiritual pleasures that Christ gives to us are eternal. As he says in Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The final benefit of Christ's passion is the growth of the church. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Not only has God apportioned to his servant the many, but God's power and that of his servant are placed side by side, gathering men, even the mighty of the earth, as their spoil. Isn't that how we began our text tonight? That kings shall shut their mouths at him. Not only that, but kings have come to the brightness of his rising. We know them by name. We know men like Constantine, Clovis, Ethelbert, 
Vladimir of Kiev, Olaf the Swede, Otomo Soren, and others. And now we, who have been made strong through Christ, share in the spoils too. Because every Christian belongs to us, just as we belong to them. Thanks be to God. As we end this sermon, we return to the beginning of chapter 53, where Isaiah asks us a couple questions here. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, that's easy. You have believed our report. And to you, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. As you have learned, the Lord's arm is a bloody arm. It is an arm pierced at the wrist. You have learned that the Lord's arm is a saving arm, since no angel or man could win salvation for a sinful science of Adam. And so to him, our crucified Lord, be all honor and praise for all of his wondrous works. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.